This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus, Harry's.com, Blue Apron, and Sherry's Berries. And we're back for the last show of 2016. This year has had no shortage of surprises, let me tell you. That it has, for Astonishing Legends especially. Tonight's episode will likely push us past 10 million downloads. It's difficult to convey how grateful we are for you guys and all of the support you've given us since we started out a little over two years ago. We're taking the holidays to plan out 2017, and we wanted to let you know that it's our goal to make next year our best yet with a ton of intriguing topics as well as live appearances on YouTube. Oh, geez, really? <laughs> and one or two more in person, even. Speaking of that, I'll be in New York City on business for the show February 25th and for a few days after. It's not firmed up yet. I'm planning a meetup for listeners while I'm there, so if you live in the Big Apple, listen to our January 2017 shows for more details on that. All right. Let's get down to business. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. It is not known precisely where angels dwell, whether in the air, the void, or the planets. It has not been God's pleasure that we should be informed of their abode. Voltaire. It's the end of the year, and last week we shared the stories of some extremely unusual deaths. This week we embrace hope and second chances that the new year brings as we take a look at some miraculous stories of survival. All right, so we're back at it, and the first thing that I want to point out is a correction to our last episode. <laughs> All right, what did I screw up? Well, we were pretty buttoned up, but there was one thing. Remember when you mentioned Rod Hall and his emu puppet <laughs> during the Killer Cassowary segment? Well, of course. Turns out he was British, not Australian. Oh, yes, that's right. And I did see that one of our number one fans on Twitter, Scribbler Maxi, was very quick to point that out. Uh, <laughs> however... In my defense, the last time I saw Rod Hull and his emu, and I think I actually called him Rob last week, was way back in 1974 on the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle show. And my kid logic back then knew that emus were from Australia. So I actually, in fact, much like the cassowaries in New Guinea, they're very revered bird there. Ah. Um, yeah, by the indigenous people, but also it's on coins, I think, and, and money. Yeah, I so can't remember anything I deal. saw on TV in 74. But then again, I'm younger than you. That's true. Yeah. I think I was nine, maybe. So you were, uh, I was yeah, five. You were just a wee tot. Yeah. But you asked me before, like on a live show, how do I remember things like that? And it's like, I get close. Yeah. But it's a very funny act. I remember just doubling over laughter as a kid, especially. Yeah. Did you show it to your son, speaking of which? No, like, I didn't. I need to show no. it to him. I did no, watch no. it when you sent it to me, and I was laughing very hard. It's he was already it's, in bed when I watched yeah, it. Yeah, 70s TV. But that's what I remembered because, you know, I think he was also wearing the Outback jacket, the Adventurer's jacket, and the and yeah. kind of modified pith helmet. So I just assumed he was Australian. So, of course, now... I had to dig way down deep for this one for the truth. Yeah. Because I would not let this rest until I found out what was really the deal. When she said it, it's like, yeah, I, I think you're right. He's British. And then, of course, I had to look it up. Well, Rod Hull was British, but he did move to Sydney, Australia in 1961. And that's where he started his television career there on TCN Channel 9. 
It's also a very well-known fact that the emu kept his Australian citizenship. So that's, <laughs> yeah, so he's still Australian. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, you got to blend there. So I think it's understandable that my nine-year-old self just assumed he was Australian. But thank you for the correction, Maxie. And how dare you make me look all that up? I'm just joking. But yes, I do owe her an apology email. Well, here's the interesting thing about that and your wonderful capitulation there. <laughs> yeah. The fact that we misstated his country of origin is not what I couldn't believe we overlooked. Oh, you mean the fact that that Bill Hudson from the Hudson Brothers show is actually American actress Kate Hudson's biological father from a time when he was briefly married to Goldie Hawn. Is that what you mean? No, no, oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's not, not it at all. Uh, okay, there was something right. else we overlooked. <laughs> oh, all right. I know what you're talking about. Well, after an episode about unusual deaths, we failed to mention that poor Rod apparently fell off the roof of his own house to his death while adjusting his TV antenna to take in a game of footy back in 1999, as Maxie tweeted at us. Right. Maxie made it clear that in her eyes, and we imagined that of many, this was a sad death of a great entertainer. But still, we have to say it fits firmly in the unusual ways to die column. She also said that reports say it wasn't clear if he simply lost his footing or maybe had a heart attack before falling. Well, according to Wikipedia... On 17th March, 1999, Hull climbed onto the roof of his bungalow named Shepherd's Cottage in Winchelsea near Rye, Sussex, to adjust his television aerial during the second leg of the Champions League quarterfinal football match between Internazionale and Manchester United at the San Siro. It was a procedure he carried out on a regular basis, as shown in home video footage included in the 2003 documentary Rod Hull, A Bird in the Hand. In his attempt to improve reception, he slipped from the roof and fell through an adjoining greenhouse. The 63-year-old entertainer suffered a severe skull fracture and chest injuries. He was pronounced dead on arrival at Conquest Hospital in Hastings. Honestly, it does have a bit of an Andy Kaufman-esque feel to it, his death. Yeah, yeah. Especially if he disappeared right after that. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> well, he's coming back. Ultimately, I think falling off a roof is not all that unusual of a way to go. But the fact that we made reference to him on an episode about unusual deaths, and even more specifically during a sequence about vicious cassowaries disemboweling folks with a flick of their bird wrists. <laughs> right? No, wait. When a bird, an it's Ankles. an ankle. Is it an ankle if it's just above the foot? Yes, I think it's actually an elevated toe joint. If you're talking about the ankle on a cassowary, it's actually way up super high and more like a backwards knee. Uh -huh. You can kind of picture that. Okay. But wait, hold on. I just listened back to last week's episode about this whole cassowary kerfuffle. <laughs> and I believe you said it was also the middle toe of the cassowary that had the long toe claw. But I think it's the first inside toe that has the really long, nasty Okay, claw. anyway. Yeah, okay, the, the point is, we already covered that. <laughs> yeah. The point is, we should have mentioned that Rod Hall fell off his roof to his death after we brought him up on the show. So last week, we took a look at both the end of the year and winter itself as a metaphor for death and used that as an excuse to share some unusual stories of unusual deaths that occurred throughout history. That's right. And here's something interesting to note. In the 36 hours between our recording session and when we were able to release the show last week, we lost two more culturally significant individuals. Right. Astronaut John Glenn, the first American to orbit the Earth, and also Greg Lake, founding member of the band Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, who was the second and last member of the trio to pass away in 2016. He was also a founding member of King Crimson and was briefly a member of the band Asia. You remember them? Yes, I do. Yeah. And in fact, later when Emerson, Lake, and Palmer formed, it was Palmer because Powell couldn't get out of his 
contract with Asia. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So yeah. anyway, but and, I know and, super musicians and just like a powerhouse, you know, everything yeah. he's done is just amazing. You know, a really you great know. work. And it's interesting too, it, going back to 2016, Keith Emerson actually committed suicide in March of this year. So yeah. just well, another one on the list of just... That's true. But like we said before, our greats from our generation are getting up there in age. And, well, some of them. You know, and you know, one thing also that we forgot to mention, and it's not a detail that was widely reported after Prince was initially found, but he, yeah. I think he was found... Partially in an elevator? I believe from the news reports at the time, he was slumped over in the elevator I of his own house and recording studio. And it wasn't, he wasn't discovered by an assistant for like several hours later. So yeah. like four or six hours later. Well, that struck a chord with me just because of the whole um, party. Like it's not, not are we not going to let the elevator? <laughs> oh, part. Yeah. Break, yeah, break no, us down? No, I'm sorry. It, it it's did. not funny. I'm not, I mean, I'm, no, no, no. I'm a huge fan of Prince. Huge fan of Prince. But no, I, I but just, you know what? That made me think he of- He actually um, died in an elevator after having died. a song about- He probably passed away pretty quickly. Yeah. But being in the elevator is what caused him to be obscured and people didn't find him right away. Right. You know, like if he passed out in the lobby or something. Yeah. Not that there could have been anything done for him, but it actually goes back to what we were talking about mixing pharmaceuticals. When you do that, you're not sure what you've been taking and how much of a dosage. It can have tr really tragic effects. So I believe that's kind of part of it. He had some pain issues. Anyway, it's been a very rough year all around, especially for losses in the music world. And you could easily do dozens of episodes on many of the other legends that passed in 2016. But tonight's show and our show in general is not about that. Yeah, tonight's show is about the other side of the coin. It's about people and stories that seem to defy the odds. Stories of survival, that evoke images of divine intervention. And as with a lot of the stories that we share on Astonishing Legends, there are some that have aspects to them that really can't be explained. In other cases, you might say, well, that's all circumstantial, and you'd be right. Everyone has to decide for themselves if a story is just a story and a set of unconnected events that culminated in a favorable outcome, or if something more was at play. And the year's end and coming holidays seem like a good time to look at that stuff. I couldn't agree more. So I know we have a few tales to share tonight, but weren't you going to start with a personal one? It's funny, I went back and forth on whether or not I wanted to share this story. Oh it's, boy, so you know it's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's extremely personal, and it was kind of a jumping off point for me, because I don't know how paranormal or supernatural it is, but mm -hmm. for me, it was a very poignant moment in my life, and... The other thing is this story makes me seem like an idiot, so it's, kind of, oh, it's a little embarrassing, yeah. but there was an aspect to it that felt otherworldly. Is it one you have told me, or, do, or am I going to Yeah, you, you know about it. Okay. We, I think the show was off the ground, actually, when it happened. Oh, I do remember, because I know what you're getting at here, and you have nothing to be ashamed about, although it's- Wait till you it hear is, all no, the details. No, no, it's-, it's Look, if you know Scott, it's kind of the way he does things, which is really buttoned up with a lot of research- and he finds the best possible way to do stuff through serious research. But that left unchecked, it gets a little out of hand sometimes. It does. It does. I certainly learned a lot of lessons from this. And this story is a road story. And one of the things that we found out on the show is that a lot of things happen on the road. The road is, yeah. is itself is a spiritual place. And exactly. And that's a huge theme, especially in uh, the Skinwalker legends, and especially what I learned from Ryan Skinner's wonderful line of books. I wanted to give him a shout out. Yes. The rock drawings and the carvings, a lot of it depicts something like along a road. And so it's a metaphor. You could say it was an actual road leading to a portal, whatever it is, but that features at least in one significant carving where it's a journey and it, a road cuts through literally the middles of nowheres. And yeah. It all around. And when you do that, you're going to run into something unusual. 
honestly, my favorite thing in the world is to take a road trip. I really love it. I've grown up that way, and I'm actually never much happier than I am than when I'm taking a long trip somewhere and I'm seeing something I've never seen before. Yeah, and you're free and easy, rolling around on the open road, the uh, yeah, the and wind I blowing. I also enjoy listening to podcasts and talk radio when <laughs> yeah, I'm on the road. That's yeah. the second thing that makes it kind of sublime for me. I know we have a lot of listeners that listen on road trips, and we have, we have a lot of truckers, a lot too. of truckers yeah. too. A shout out to you guys. Thank you so much for being so supportive. I'll get into the meat of the story. Anyway, yeah. I, I was taking a trip with my son from Los Angeles to Colorado a few years ago. I guess this was maybe going on a, right around three years ago, maybe, or something yeah, that somewhere about in that right. neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I was driving at the time I had a 2007 Jeep Wrangler Rubicon four-door. If you bought one of our T-shirts, there's a little bit of a silhouette on the side. That's right. The Jeep which, is down there on the... On <laughs> which the, we have so. trouble explaining. Is like, is this a car show? I don't get I know yeah. you guys click and clack and all that. But like, <laughs> no, the original idea for the Jeep and our cars is that we were planning to maybe be a little bit more mobile than yes. reality would have us. We're still dreaming. We're still dreaming that. about that. But that's kind of the theme and the vibe and the feel is that we both love road trips. We love traveling. Uh, we love automobiles. Yeah. And we love going out and... Uh, talking to folks and finding new stories. So we were thinking like, wow, we're going to take this remote. We're going to get out there. And it's like, well, life has other plans for both of us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in this Jeep, I had had it since it was new in 2007. So already at this point, I'd had it a, a pretty good while. And I'd made a lot of modifications to it. And by the yeah, time, I'll say. By the time <laughs> I finished with it, it yeah. was essentially an off-road capable mini RV. It had, yeah. had a tent on the roof, a fridge in the back, a stove, And well, just too much to list, as they say sometimes when they sell a car like that. (laughs) Right. Now, I've been building and modifying cars my whole life. I'm a car guy, as we've said a billion times. And with all of that experience, I have kind of a fatal flaw of being convinced that I know what I'm doing, (laughs) even when I don't. That's a little bit genetics to a dad. I'm going to give you a shout out there. And then, well, two fatal flaws, really. That one, and also just making things more complicated than they need to be in general. Well, you you always try to maximize the potential of any... I would say machinery or piece of equipment. <laughs> wow, this is proving to be really it. What I'm well, here getting back from Forrest is really fascinating. No, it's like a therapy session, but <laughs> I admire that. It's probably, I have a lot of the same traits where it's just like, if we're going to invest time with this thing, it should work and work to the best of its potential. But I think you maybe over exceeded the, uh, or just exceeded the capabilities of the actual well, Physicality I, I did things in the wrong order. Okay. I made a couple of bad errors in this case. One of the main things I did was I added too much weight to it before I modified the suspension to handle the extra weight. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Anyway, I'm planning this big trip with my son to take him to see my dad, who lives in Denver, and my stepmom, too. And then we we're going to travel down south to visit our friends at that ranch in southern Colorado that we always mention on the show. And I was so excited about this trip because when I was a kid— I used to take these same kinds of trips with my dad. It was one of the highlights of my summers, so much so that I'm pretty sure it's what set me out to get a Jeep in the first place because I wanted to take my son on these big, grandiose road trips and go off-roading and stuff like that. And However, nearly all of my logic was flawed. (laughs) I could go on and on about it for quite some time, but the long and short of it is I was rushing things, both with the Jeep itself and also with my son, who was probably about a year and a half too young to be taken on a trip like this. And So essentially, I was taking risks that I wasn't even aware I was taking because I've been blinded by this goal of making this certain thing happen, Clark Griswold style. (laughs) Even though in the the back of my mind, I knew that maybe it just wasn't the right time. And and the other thing about my dad and and me is when we took our trips was that he had me when he was much younger. He was in his early 20s, and I had my son (laughs) when I was 40. So there's a whole different game going on there for the old man in the driver's seat. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) anyway. Yeah. How did uh, your son take long 
long trips with nothing but you and, and maybe some adult uh, he loved it. audio. Yeah, he loved it. He's yeah. a good traveler. He's right. a good traveler. And uh, when he was much younger, I had taken some longer trips with him too. And yeah. when my wife and I moved from the East Coast back to the West Coast, I drove across the country with him that time too. Yeah, he was very yeah. young. But in some ways it was easier to manage because he was super predictable. And he rode in the back and did great. And yeah. we, I would stop every... 90 minutes or so at a Walmart or a Home Depot and we would go inside and I would just let him run around and go crazy. Yeah, right. And then get back energy. in, hit the road back and yeah, he was fine. Yeah, you know? okay. But this was later. He was closer to five years old now. Right. He's cognizant, he's having conversations, he's talking to me about stuff and we were on I-40 coming out of LA headed towards Arizona Theoretically, I should be excited about taking this trip, and I was, but I wasn't actually that comfortable because I realized that my Jeep, now that it was loaded down with food and luggage, along with the heavy-duty bumpers and the winch and everything else that I added, it was extremely squirrely. It felt like a 1970s Cadillac with a two-story house on top of it. Pretty floaty. Yeah, yeah. super Spongy. floaty and yeah. unstable. And and I could tell that if I would have had to make a panic stop or swerve for any reason, it was going to be real difficult to control. Yeah. I was extremely tense. My neck was tight. I was like gripping the steering wheel super hard. Uh, you know, less concerned for my own safety than that of my son. Of who, course. You know, who I'm in charge of protecting. And he's in a child seat. Yeah, in the middle and the back, which yeah. is the safest place to be. And, but, the, and the Jeep had an internal roll cage too, which was part of the weight issue. But it was safer than most in terms of a collision or a rollover or something. But also it was more prone to making one at this particular point in, and, in its and life. And of course, the, the overriding rule is keep the shiny side up, yeah, yeah, which and, wouldn't have happened in a swerving incident. Yeah. Right. So being hell-bent on making the trip, I kept going in spite of the wobbliness, thinking that as soon as the trip was over, I was going to look into beefing up my suspension and get it up to par for all the added weight. <laughs> By adding more weight. Yeah, because yeah. I just need to keep going. Right. And I think it's safe to say that my decision to continue on the trip was probably one of the worst ones I've ever made. And in hindsight, it was one that might have led to a tragic accident. And it's something I still beat myself up about to this day. Oh, don't do that too much. Well, you know? well it, it was dumb. Yeah. And it wasn't even pride. It was just sort of a blind no, uh, goal, goal orientation. Yeah, goal yeah. orientation. So anyway, I'm tooling along, continuing to ignore the signs that I should turn back and cancel the trip. That's really what I should have done. That's when the Jeep began to have an unusual problem, one of the worst kind in the automotive world, aside from a wheel coming off or something, mm. an electrical issue. The dash began lighting up. Things were cutting on and off. It was a lot like what happened to good old Roy Neary in Close Encounters at the train tracks. It was just lights were flashing and everything. <laughs> yeah. This usually means that you have an alternator problem. Yeah. But I couldn't be sure, and I kept thinking it was going to get better because it was intermittent. It was coming and going, and I thought, well, you know, I should pull over, and what I'll do is shut it off and start it back up because in the past, I had had a few very minor problems and actually spoken to a dealer, and he said, just reset the computer, it'll be fine. Yeah. And you do that by turning it off, let it sit for 30 seconds, turn it back on. So I pulled over onto this off-ramp, going up this big ramp, was on an incline, and I pulled past the road at the top of it, and then about 50 yards back down onto the on-ramp on the other side, which would take me right back onto I-40 once I hopefully got everything sorted out. So in a long chain of unfortunate events, the ramp I chose, or really had to choose, was in one of those cuts in the rock, you know, where they blasted out to put a road through. And because this was just an on-ramp that was really only one lane, it was a very narrow and very tall cut. So I essentially had like two six-story buildings on both sides of me. Poor cell reception is what you're getting at here. Yeah, yeah. that's what we're about to find out. So yeah. I turned off the car thinking, well, it's sputtering anyway, and maybe a computer reset will get it sorted until we can get to the next town. So I turned it off, and it stayed off, really off. It was done. It didn't want to restart at all. So now I'm broken down on the side of 
I-40, pretty far out in the middle of nowhere, about 20 miles east of Kingman, Arizona. In the back seat, I have my son, who I think was probably right around five years old, and who relies on me to protect him from the dangers of the world. It's very difficult to explain how upset I felt about this absurd predicament that I had brought him into. At this point, I'm thinking, okay, well, I got AAA, just going to get on my cell and call for help. Meanwhile, he's getting hungry and wondering what we're up to, and I, of course, didn't want to be scared, so I'm not giving him the full story. On top of that, I felt like a complete idiot, and no dad wants his son to see him that way. But I also just wanted him to feel safe, so I played it cool. I got him a snack out of the fridge in the back, something to drink, went around to look under the hood. Whatever was wrong was not immediately obvious. There was no smoking gun. So it was time to make that phone call. It was at this point I discovered that my cell phone had, as you alluded to earlier, Forrest, no yeah. signal right. whatsoever. Yeah. The cut I was in with the valley, with the rocks around it, it was zip. I didn't have a half bar. I didn't have LTE. I didn't have, the phone just said no service. <laughs> well, now that's going to be a hike up to the top, the nearest hill. Yeah, and there was no way to get anywhere. I mean, to add to all of this, the spot where we pulled over was virtually invisible to the passersby on I-40. Yeah. Because of the rock cut and the length of the on-ramp I had come to a rest on, I would have had to walk a quarter mile easy just to get someone's attention down on the freeway where the sporadic and light traffic was traveling an average of about 80 miles per hour. So the car is dead, the phone won't get a signal, we're in the middle of nowhere, and it's getting late, and I'm not in a position to even flag down help. It was at this point that my son started feeling bad. In fact, it seemed as though he might have a fever. Oh, dear. It was a nice day, but it was the desert, and it was the fall, so that meant we had to sort something out because it was going to get real cold after dark, and it was already 4 or 5 p.m., from what I remember. Now, I'm a pretty resourceful guy. I like to think generally better prepared than most folks, but I was easily in one of the worst situations I could imagine at this point. And in my mind, I was failing royally as a father. I mean, I've been a dad for nearly eight years now, and we all have those moments, parents do, I think, where you're like, holy crap, I can't believe that just happened. Mm. I almost dropped my child on his head or whatever, but thank God, me and my kid got through that. But this was different. I've taken a lot of road trips, like I said, a lot, and I understood the gravity of the situation. We were broken down and isolated, and now my son was getting sick. And the sense of vulnerability that I had was overwhelming. Not wanting to hike down to the interstate with my ailing five-year-old where the cars were flying by and traffic was light, mind you, but I, I wasn't about to leave him alone in the car either. So my phone was in a dead zone and I was completely out of options. We weren't packed for camping. The vehicle was set up for camping, but I didn't have that kind of stuff. We were mostly staying at people's houses and in a hotel here and there, so uh. I didn't have the thing to weather a very cold night in the tent on the roof, which well, it would have been Well, now you are responsible in my view. I'm kidding. But well, no, I mean, <laughs> no, the blankets were up there, but yeah. I'm not going to be able to get in the tent with no, a no. feverish five-year-old no, and, and you spend don't the night. Yeah, I know what you're saying. You don't want to set Especially that Especially on an too. on-ramp where I should be sleeping with an eye open and a gun, which, yeah. no, I didn't have that either. This is one of those times that you're you, the middle of nowhere. you want to have something yeah, no, <laughs> to I defend hear yourself, you. I hear. especially well, no, with your child. Exactly. And there's nowhere really to picture this for you to pull over, right? Right. you got road and maybe, what, five or six feet of shore? Yeah, we're right up against the edge of one of those blasted out cliffs. So I'm sitting there in the driver's seat in full-blown MacGyver mode, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I'm coming up with nothing over and over and over. I can't figure out a plan. And at that very moment, I heard a loud rumbling sound and a tractor trailer came up the off-ramp behind us on the other side of the little road that the exit was for, which was only there for access to a giant ranch. There was no town off that road, no public destination. The truck pulled up all the way up behind us, not ominously, but probably about, <laughs> yeah. about 50 feet. You and your son also like to watch the movie Duel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. yeah. So the driver, um, he got out, and I didn't know anything about this guy. He's a total stranger, and 
Where we were, we were completely out of sight from any witnesses, and let's just say I was concerned. But by the same token, he was our only shot at getting help at that moment. I told my son to stay in the car, and I cautiously approached him. I couldn't figure out really why he would have gotten off there, and now it was just him and us, or him and me outside. He climbed out and walked up to me, and I told him my car had broken down and my phone wouldn't work to call for help. And he said, well, let's try mine. And he went back to his truck and got it for me. It had a full signal here in this place where I had none. I used it to call AAA and arrange for a tow truck to come meet us. The only problem was the tow truck was super busy that day and he wouldn't be by for at least an hour. I told the driver my son was sick and in the car, and without the tow truck, we would be in danger. And he just smiled and said simply, I'll stay with you guys until it gets here. He went back and sat in his truck, and over an hour later, the tow truck arrived. That was after once it disappointingly showed up at the top of the on-ramp, turned across the bridge to go the other way down the interstate to help someone else. Oh, that's, yeah. It was like, it's here! And then No, that's the stranded castaway on the island, and the plane, you know, yeah. veers off to the other direction. That's exactly what happened. So a little while later, the tow truck arrived. I thanked the truck driver for waiting, and he said really it was no problem at all. And he got back in his truck, headed on down the on-ramp, and back onto the freeway. Now, that guy could have been anyone. He could have been not such a nice person. And things could have gone real different for me and my son. As long as I live, I will never forgive myself for putting him in that position. And I can't say that truck driver was an angel of some kind, but I can say that he showed up in our time of need and stayed with us until we were safe. Maybe he was sent by someone. I actually asked him why he got off there, and he told me, I'm not sure. I guess I needed a break for a minute. Mm. Maybe it was all just a coincidence. I suppose it says something about the world that it's a shocking surprise when someone stops to help you who has absolutely nothing to gain by doing so. I don't know a whole lot about being a truck driver, really. I mean, I know we have a lot of drivers that listen to us, as I said earlier. Hey, guys. But I do know that time is money and that sitting on the side of the road for an hour when you've either got a load to pick up or deliver or going home, it's not something everybody's going to do. When we start researching for an episode, there's nothing better than finding a really trustworthy source of information because we're always looking for the real story. Even before we started this podcast, it was important to us personally to know what we were talking about, or at least sound like we did. That's why the Great Courses Plus is such an awesome resource, and boy do I wish it was around when I was a student. Me too. That's why it makes such a great gift for the students in your life or anyone that loves learning. And now you can try it out and get a full month of free video courses from The Great Courses Plus when you sign up using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com legends. When you sign up, you'll get access to over 8,000 engaging video lectures presented by award-winning professors, and more courses are added every month. There's so many topics to check out, from history, science, and art, to learning a new language or learning how to draw or cook. And with this offer, you can check out as many as you like. And the learning couldn't be more convenient. Stream as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere, from your smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV. What better time to learn something new when you're taking a break from all the relatives and festivities this holiday season? If I can find any downtime at all, I'll be watching the rest of our current course, The Early Middle Ages. Where are you on that one, Forrest? I actually skipped ahead to a lecture called Arthur's England because I love the legend of King Arthur. I'll go back and pick up where I left off, of course, but Arthur's definitely going to be a future episode of our show, so I just couldn't wait. Okay, then tell me something about him. Where should we start? Well, it's a bit murky, but after the departure of the Romans, the indigenous Celtic people of Britain resisted the invasions and migrations of the Anglo-Saxons, and it's possible, although not certain, that a British war leader named Arthur won a decisive battle against them at Mount Baden around 500 AD. 
Now, they're pretty sure there was actually a battle, but no accounts from that time clearly indicate that Arthur was there or that Arthur was even a king. And no one really knows where Mount Baden is today. Well, that sounds like an astonishing legend for sure. Indeed. So much more fascinating information awaits you at The Great Courses Plus with a special offer. Sign up today to get one month free as one of our listeners. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Hello, everyone. I'm Jordan Bonaparte from the Nighttime Podcast, and this is Astonishing Legends. So let's get back to the show. Well, that's interesting, especially the fact that he wasn't kind of sure really why he had taken that remote off ramp. Yeah. Folks, if you can picture this, it's not like he can see it's got the sign like food, camping, gas, and, uh, you know, or there's a truck stop there for him to pull off. And as Scott said, if you're out there on the road, time is money. And yeah, you're either on your way to pick something up or dropping it off, or you're done and you're going home for a spell and you want to get there as quickly as possible. And, and so they don't want really want to be lollygagging around doing stuff. So it's interesting now, I will say there's a lot of stories out there about even ghost truckers. And as the letters and emails and, that we've gotten from truckers out there, they can tell you that they see a lot of strange things. Be sure and tell them Large Marge sent you. <laughs> An old email we got, some guy he uh, up north, kind of where I'm from, he goes to this quarry which is pitch black in the middle of the night, and I think he dumps his load or something out there. Listening to the spooky stories puts a different spin on it. When yeah. Out in the middle of nowhere, there's no one else around and it's totally dark. There's tons of stories about that kind of happening in, in all variations. Motorists who are down by the, off the side of the road who get helped. Uh, yeah. Or there's an accident and somebody shows up and they ask who that was and it's like, oh, they're gone now. They just stopped by the help. Now, it doesn't mean it's paranormal or right. that they're an angel. It could just be somebody who just decided to stop and help and they don't really need to be thanked. They're glad they helped. They put their time in there and then they're, they just want to move on. Yeah. So what's interesting though, just from the little aspect, I don't, I don't think this guy was a ghost no. or anything, but maybe something was put into his mind that it might be a good time to pull over and take a break for a stretch. Well, you know, the interesting thing is it, it took me a while to find out I actually never found out exactly what was wrong with the vehicle, which is also a huge problem for me because I have OCD a little bit about that kind of thing and uh, what's wrong with the car, what's right with it, or machines in general. Yeah. I called several times to the dealership that I wound up towing it to, and they had fixed it relatively quickly. They replaced a part, right? Yeah, they said something about the battery cable being chewed through by the battery, some vibration or something. Oh, that's right, yeah. And it caused a short, and maybe that was the case, but I never could actually talk to the technician who worked on it. He could never come to the phone. I tried three times. They were all angels. I'm not saying that, but it was was weird. I couldn't reach the guy. I was like, oh, he's at lunch. Oh, he's not in today. Oh, and by that time, I had gone back to Los Angeles with my son in a rental car because he needed to go to the doctor. So I had the Jeep towed back to Los Angeles, and I guess... When I look back on it and how wonky the suspension was with all that weight on it, finishing that trip honestly would have been a mistake, especially going up through the Rockies. So for me, when I think about whether or not someone or something is looking out for me or just my son, which I'm fine with, I I think about how I was ignoring signs that the trip was not meant to be and how when I ignored those signs, something stepped in and made sure that it wouldn't happen. And we broke down. And after that, we were guarded by a good Samaritan that came out of nowhere and stayed with us until we were safe. That moment where we were stuck and the phone wasn't working and my son was getting sick and it was getting dark, that, it was a life changer for me. So and since then, 
We've taken several successful road trips, one in the very same Jeep after I got the suspension right, and another one more recently in the Jeep's replacement, Oh yeah, <laughs> which well. is a used Land Rover that happily gets us all of the same places the Jeep would have. And thankfully, I've been cured of my desire to extensively modify cars. I'll tell you that for nothing. <laughs> well, you have a vehicle that will safely get you to the nearest hotel. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. And I'm like yeah. I said, it's part of that generation. I'm getting older and I'm okay without. It still does pretty well off-road, yeah. you know, and it can well, do the things that I want to do occasionally besides being a grocery getter. And mine has <laughs> been off-road several times, I will say that. Driven no. in blizzards, just the whole nine yards. Right, right. I always take a longer, wider view of uh, history, especially the past. And you feeling bad about taking your son or putting him in that kind of danger, I get that. Yeah. You know, look, I don't have any children of my own, but I certainly do empathize and I understand it. On the other hand, all of the past history where people just took their kids, imagine the pioneers like, come on, family, we're going out west to the Oregon Trail. Yeah. Through Death Valley. Yeah. Well, there's a reason they call it Death Valley. We touched on that a little bit. You can easily die there. Yeah. What I'm getting is it don't beat yourself up too much. That's really life. That's well, getting out there. However, I will say, yes, if you're going to do that, I've certainly heard tons more stories, way more than people being responsible, is people being kind of irresponsible and not thinking things through. Yeah. Like the DJ, do you know what area you're going into? Do you know what you should take? You got to realize we have it really comfortable now. I know people like to gripe and like, well, the Wi-Fi is out of this plane. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you have it very easy and rarely does death come knocking at your door. So we've gotten too soft and we don't realize that accidents and tragedies and mishaps and misadventure is right around every step, around every corner, and it can happen to anybody. Yeah. And I'll tell you something else. Your cell carrier, you might think you're on an interstate and you've got signal everywhere you go, but you don't. You don't, and you don't on a lot of the major byways either, which is to be expected, but even the interstates have dead spots. And well, that's why the, I also uh, yeah. got a used satellite phone. Yeah, well, <laughs> so no, that's a good idea. Like, if I can see the sky, I can make a phone call now, and that's I always have it with me if I take a road trip. The type of off-roading we like to at least just think about it. Yeah, actually to think do. about it. No, get a study up on <laughs> is called overlanding. And so the idea is that you're not boulder crawling. You're kind of out in the open bureau of land management. Yeah, free range camping. Space. Yeah, just out in the open spaces. None of it's going to be in cell range. And uh, yes, satellite phones you do have, but also a lot of overlanders take shortwave radio. Yeah. Because that you can communicate with from virtually anywhere. I also have the a weather, so. personal locator beacon. Yeah. Which that's has an emergency button. Sense. But you can't, if you press that button and you don't actually need help, you get a bill for like $400,000. Right. Because when you hit it, it's like an EPIRB on a sailboat or a boat when it capsizes. The EPIRB automatically sends a signal out that the Coast Guard picks up or the satellites pick up, and then they send help for you. Right. When you press the button, you've got to seriously be needing the help. Because yeah. it mobilizes a rescue team to wherever you are. Right. Well, look. But, my- and it's a great thing to have. It's peace of mind. Yeah. But it might not work in every scenario. Again, you have to be able to see the sky for yeah. that because it's satellite-based. You try and prepare as best you can for what you're getting into and do your research, find out what you're getting into yeah. before you get up there. And, and there was just a story where a GPS failed. Uh, this family ended up in a very snowy uh, yeah. pass and got stuck and didn't get to, I think, for at least 24 hours. Yeah. They're very lucky. There's a story a few years ago about a family. I believe he worked in Silicon Valley and he got his family stuck at the top. Uh, this would be Donner Pass area, I yeah. believe. And uh, they got stuck up there and uh, they miraculously most of the family survived. Unfortunately, the father went out on foot. Left the vehicle. Yeah, he left the vehicle, which is never a great thing because do you know where you're going? Yeah. And he didn't. And what they found was that he was suffering the effects of hypothermia where you start to think you're really hot. And he started taking off his 
jacket and his coat and his clothes and and they just found him unfortunately now the, they had an infant with them you're thinking like well you know look people take family trips you do doesn't mean you can't just wait till every kid is 10 years old before yeah. you venture out I believe uh, our family was going to move. I think I was six months old. And they took a long trip from wherever I'm from down to California. So <laughs> that's that was going to be the thing. And the, we had an old 46 Ford. Yeah. That kept overheating. So they made it as far as Oregon. And then they had to kind of stay with relatives and then head back. So my life could have been totally different. But I'm from the era where people aren't so knee padded and elbow padded and, and helmeted these yeah. days. They take more adventure. That was, But I will say that people were more in tune with common sense and nature and mechanical things, and they knew more about it. Nowadays, nobody knows anything. I mean, no, yeah, no, but know, I can, can't I work can on their fix, cars nowadays. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can fix an old 350 with a four-barrel on it. I cannot yeah. fix a car with onboard diagnostic two system and 15 computers under. If I can't immediately yeah. see what's wrong, now if I'd have noticed an electrical problem, I could have fixed it. But anyway, right. we're getting too far off we're topic We're getting too far here, off topic, but, but, but here's the thing. It's What we're going to talk about here coming up is people finding themselves by chance by ignorance somehow in very precarious spots with surprising results. I feel like I just got insulted there. What? By ignorance. <laughs> no. I'm you saying, know what? It's funny. I was yeah. thinking about like if they did dispatch someone to help me, I was thinking about the conversation yeah. about like they see my car wobbling down the road. I've got, you know, my son in there. Yeah. Seems like it's going to flip if a what? mosquito flies in Why'd you in take a window? six-cylinder car and load it up to 7,500 pounds? <laughs> yeah. And then what? I could see them. What the hell is this guy doing? <laughs> yeah. hey, you know what? Kill the electrical on that thing. Oh, good Lord. Why on earth would he pull over there? <laughs> yeah. All right. Send Fred to watch him until they get out of there. <laughs> You're it's a, always Fred. Well, this American life. Well, yeah. Clarence, yes. Yeah. Well, he's got to earn his wings, so he's watching a, yeah. a, a good man going through trouble. But I do believe that sometimes there are forces that are keeping an eye yeah. on you. And a lot of times people just ignore that gut feeling. That's usually when people get in trouble. They ignore that gut feeling. All right. So I want to talk about another story. This actually took place in 2007. When I was still living in New York City, and that's relevant because I actually remembered when this happened, it was a story about a couple of window washers that the whole city took notice of. They were washing windows at 265 East 66th Street on the Upper East Side. They were a pair of brothers who had been doing it together for about 12 years, so they're fairly experienced. However, on this day, something went wrong. The cables that were supposed to connect their scaffolding to the building were improperly set or right. broke or something, and the platform they were on fell. 47 stories. stories. <laughs> right. Yeah. So let me just tell you a little bit about this. Your chances of survival falling from three stories are about 50-50. Your chances of survival above 10 stories are nearly zero. Yeah, it has happened, but it's extremely rare. Extremely rare. So the two guys, Edgar Moreno and his brother, Alcides, Moreno, were on the platform, and when it started to fall, Edgar actually got separated for it, but Alcides rode it all the way down, apparently. Mm. Not only did Alcides live, but when the paramedics arrived, he was sitting up, clutching his chest, after falling 47 stories. Now, make no mistake, he had some injuries. Both his legs were broken. His right arm was broken. His right wrist was broken. He had organ damage, including collapsed lungs, crushed that's, vertebra, yeah. and his brain was bleeding. Oof. So that's, it's not like he was going to walk into the ambulance. No, but that's why he was clutching his chest. Yeah. The collapsed lung. But he was alive. Somehow he lived. Now, to start with, Alcides 
stayed with the scaffolding all the way down, like I said a few minutes ago. Some reports said he was essentially riding it like a surfboard, and it actually bounced off the building before landing in the alley on a pile of cables. Mm. Presumably the cables from the last window washers, I guess. Oh, I, no. <laughs> I don't know. You know, the right. thing about those alleys there's is so between much the trash. buildings, there's yeah. all the stuff that's fallen down from the buildings ever since they were built is in there. There was an alley like that in the building I worked in, much narrower. Yeah. You couldn't fit a person in it. It was only you know, eight inches wide, but it oh, had God. detritus from the early 1900s. Jeez. You know, I always, always wonder about that because basically they're sealed off in a way, right? There's, yeah. You can't you, really you get in drop anything in it, it's gone, right? Yeah. A thousand years from now, maybe uh, 2,000, it's going to be some archaeologist delight yeah. to dig that up. Yeah. yeah. It probably would be now if anybody bothered, but you know, in <laughs> Just New York, everybody's like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, you know? Right. So Alcides went to the hospital where his injuries were so critical that he received 24 units of blood and 19 pints of plasma, enough blood to replace his entire body supply twice. After that, the doctors put him into a medically induced coma to protect his brain. And they do this, it shuts the brain down so that it doesn't have to worry with the higher functions and it can right. just focus on healing. You focus on healing and I think reduces swelling, Mary? Yes, it reduces yeah. swelling. Mm -hmm. 18 days later, on, you guessed it, Christmas Day, 2007, he woke up and spoke. According to one news report, he'd been reaching out with his hand to touch his wife's face when she was near the bed, and he did this to a nurse who was standing there. His wife was sitting in the room and was like, wait a minute. And he said, what'd I do? <laughs> yeah. At this point, she said, you can speak. <laughs> so 18 days in a coma after a 47-story fall, and he comes out of it joking around. According to most reports, Moreno and his brother were probably falling at close to 125 miles per hour. I can't remember how uh, how many feet it takes to fall before you reach maximum velocity well, or we terminal velocity. We talked about that yeah. in the uh, research core. Of course, Chris Cogswell chimed in, as well as Devin, who are both scientists. Back off, man. I'm a scientist. They'll tell you that a person falling will achieve terminal velocity after falling about 550 meters, which is a lot further than a 47-story building. So right. he'll also tell you that depending on the size of the scaffolding platform with wind resistance, it could have been slowed down significantly. But these are all things we can't know right now, not without contacting the company and finding out exactly how big the scaffold was and talking to eyewitnesses who could tell us if it fell perfectly flat or at an angle and somehow ascertaining if there was an updraft in the alley. Yeah that further slowed it down. These are all reasons that I got a D in calculus-based <laughs> physics, by the way, and which it, I signed yeah. up for by accident. Oh, see, again, <laughs> that sounds that's a very Phil Burke thing to do. Yeah. But you know what? None of that matters. Yeah, it, it passed, really... though. A D's passing, right? I passed it. Calculus-based physics. Woo! Yeah, I don't think you're going to be getting D. any jobs at uh, Fermilab no. soon. No. None of this really matters as far as the math is that stranger things have happened. I believe there's a story about a photographer. I can't remember if it's Al Capitan that... And I don't know if there was any witnesses, but it's what he claimed, that he wasn't looking where he was going, fell off an edge, and there was a huge updraft, oh, a yeah. surge of air, putting him back up on top. Oh, I mean, wow. Just, I guess kind of like in the show Stranger <laughs> Things, yeah. uh, where he jumps into the quarry. Oh, yeah. It's one of those things where, like, divine intervention, strong wind... I believe it's possible with just physics and wind and yeah. weather. Those kind of, we always talk about strange things can happen with extreme weather and wind's a very powerful force. So, Well, yeah, I got to yeah. tell you, I did a little research on this and I found out the building that the Moreno brothers fell from is actually 472 feet tall, not over 500 as most of the major newspapers said, uh -huh. who probably didn't bother to reference the actual height of the building and records versus guessing by the number of stories. Keeping in mind, it probably doesn't even have a 13th floor. So you're off by 10 <laughs> right. feet right yeah. there if you're doing math based on the 46th floor 
and it's not 47. It was 46 floors that they claimed it was, but mm-hmm. it's 46 minus a 13, so it's probably 45. Now, at that height, according to an amazing website I found called the Splat Calculator, Oof. link in the show notes, yeah, which is more about mountain climbing, but the math is all the same. Falling from the very top, they would not quite have gotten to terminal velocity, but they still would have been going around 119 miles an hour if you take other mitigating factors out of the equation. The whole thing would have lasted about 5.4 seconds. Now, the truth is Alcide's brother, Edgar, was probably falling faster because he wasn't on the platform. Alcides was, and it was like, as we mentioned before, a giant surfboard. So his speed may have been slowed down significantly by wind resistance, but it's hard for us to know without dropping a bunch of window washing platforms off the same building. Now, since that accident, Alcides has made a miraculous recovery that rivals the fact that he lived through the fall in the first place. And after a multi-million dollar settlement with the global hoisting company Tractel Incorporated, he went on Google looking for a nice warm place to live with good schools. Now, he and his entire family are in Gilbert, Arizona, outside of Phoenix, where he does fundraising walks for charity. It was a short time after that that he was actually up and walking. Yes. His recovery was remarkable. In fact, doctors described it as a miracle. Doctors also described the fact that he survived as a miracle. So I guess you have to ask yourself, at what point does a series of seemingly disconnected events that work together to prevent a death become divine intervention of some kind? A series of circumstances that come together in just the right way to prevent a death. The platform, just the right size for wind resistance, the angle of descent, the updraft from the alley, the friction of cables still attached. Is that a miracle or just pure chance? So we could do a three-year investigation, try to get all the facts on all that stuff, but we'd be doing what I'd like to call chasing the odds. And even if we got down to a scientific and rational explanation of how Alcides' descent was slowed to a survivable speed by that confluence of factors, do we accept that as just a coincidence that added up to survival? Or do we ask ourselves if somehow something intervened to save him for some reason? Which I think is the question he probably asks himself every day and anyone else would who's lived through something like that. I think it's a very personal thing as far as him being saved. Did he live to cure cancer? Did he... <laughs> well, don't back. put that on him. No, no, no. What I'm saying is, no, that's, that's my point. That's, that's exactly Then we get into the whole survivor's guilt. None of that matters. For whatever reason, he survived. Yeah. And he goes on living. And think of all the times where that usually doesn't happen, where the yeah. person just dies. And he hey, lost his brother. Well, I think if there's any meaning in it at all, it's a very personal one. Hey, have you ever gotten an engraved gift? I have, actually. Yeah, well, how'd that make you feel? What are you, my therapist? (laughs) If you must know, it made me feel like the person who gave it to me really cared and wanted to make me feel special. And it did. Personalization means a lot. It does. And now you can give someone that extra special touch with a Harry Shaving gift set. Their very popular Winston set comes with a chrome handle, which you can get engraved with a person's initials, along with shaving cream, a travel cover, and replacement blades. Or Harry's has the Truman set with your choice of handles in three cool colors, also with shaving cream and blades starting at just $15. This is a gift you know will get used. Uh, unless it's that guy who tripped on his beard and died. What was that story again? Oh, right. We, we actually accidentally left this guy out of the Unusual Deaths episode. In uh, 1567, the burgomaster of Brunau, Hans Steininger, tripped on his four-and-a-half-foot beard and broke his neck. <laughs> And normally he kept it rolled up in a leather pouch, apparently. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You know, friends don't let friends trip on their facial hair and die. So to help make sure that doesn't happen to you, we have a special offer for our listeners. We've partnered with Harry's to give you $5 off your order when you enter code LEGENDS at checkout. 
Ground shipping for the holiday ends on December 16th, so act now. Go to harrys.com right now to get a holiday shave set, and don't forget to enter code LEGENDS at checkout for $5 off. That's harrys.com, code LEGENDS. This is Haley. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, so moving on, we're going to start this next story. There's a lot of Arizona tonight. Well, it's a very enchanted whole region. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like there's an Arizona connection in every single story, except one of them is Utah. Close enough. But yeah, uh, <laughs> it, is the, it is connected. It's only divided by our imaginary human-made lines. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, it only exists because of our imaginary human-made As human-made a state, lines. sure. Yeah. No, but as a region, I kind of group it together as the magical whole southwestern United States. Oh, guess what just popped up on my phone, Forrest? Uh, right, we're recording on Tuesday, December 13th here. Arizona has seceded no, from the union? No, from my app called Starwalks, one of those apps you can point at the sky and see oh, the constellations. Yes. It just said... Uh, Tonight, watch out for the last full moon of 2016. Oh, there you go. All right. So it's a fitting end for this year. All right. So next story takes place in a town in Arizona that we've mentioned several times on the show before, and I'll let Forrest say the name of it. Prescott. (laughs) Prescott. Not Prescott, like a biscuit. It's going to keep coming up. Yeah. I think people who live there for however long, for one generation or five Say it in the two different ways. Oh, thank God there's only two different ways. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. either Prescott or Prescott. And I believe it probably, my theory is that it depends on where your family originally emigrated from. Immigrated from, emigrated. I don't know. Like, like right, how, many, how, how many ways are we going to say emigrated? Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> it's like how you folks say your words. Like an older lady I met in California here renting me an apartment calls it a frigider. Frigidaire. So it's a combination like between a refrigerator and frigidaire. Yes. And when I was a kid, apparently my mom tells me I said uh, frigidaire. That's pretty damn close. Well, that has nothing to yeah, do with it. Yeah. No, what no. You're so, about. so uh, <laughs> like, again, he's tired of me asking, but I, I keep asking my friend John, who grew up there all his life. And I said, Do many people said, Yes, I've heard it. He said, No, but most people do not. And he said, You know, he went to baseball camp all of his youth in Prescott every summer. Right. And he said, Nobody there that he ever met ever called it Prescott. Yeah. So there, well, there except, you go. again, except for his stepdad, who was originally from Alabama. So maybe it's a Southern thing. Well, maybe it is. Well, yeah. I wonder if John has ever heard the story of the Hatbox Baby. Uh, he may have. It's a great local Arizona story, but it's it takes famous place. Story. Yeah, but it takes place quite a while ago, 1931. That's right. Christmas Eve, 1931. Ed and Julia Stewart were on their way home to Mesa. Well, I actually had an aunt that used to live in Mesa, so I'm quite familiar with it. Oh, does she know about it? Um, Should have asked her. uh, Well, I would have. She passed some time ago uh, before I knew about this story. Oh, I see. So anyway, they're driving home to Mesa after taking their teen twin cousins out to see some snow, presumably in the Tonto National Forest area. And uh, they were coming back from that, and they were just about seven miles west of Superior, Arizona, when their car broke down. And you know where this is, right? It's really not that far from Phoenix, right? It's kind of... uh... Yes, it's east of Phoenix, and guess what it's south of? Well, Superstition Mountains? That's right. I believe on the map, it's the Boyce Thompson Arboretum State Park, because it was seven miles outside of Superior. Yeah, seven miles west of Superior. Exactly. On the highway, though, and is is that 60, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah, there you go. So, and the Superstitions, as everyone knows, is home of the KGC mother load. (laughs) If you don't know what I'm talking about, find episodes 27, 28, and 29 of Astonishing Legends for more information. 
Yes, the hometown of Elijah Rebus. All right, so here's a classic case of the kinds of things we find when we start digging on stories like these. A few stories say that Ed and Julia got a flat tire. There's another story that says it was some kind of mechanical failure. Actually, there's several that say both things, and that Ed was messing around with the fuel line, and that was repeated in other reports, too. Either way, the car stopped, and they had to pull over to figure out what was wrong with it. It was a beautiful night, and while Ed got the car fixed up with the twins huddled in the back trying to stay warm, Ed was either changing a tire or repairing a fuel line, depending on which journalist got the details right, and Julia decided to take a little bit of a walk down the side of the road. It was a clear night, stars were bright, and as she was walking around, and actually I don't even know, I don't know if she walked up or down the side of the road or if she walked into the desert. I've certainly pulled over on the side of the road in the desert and had an interest in venturing out a little ways. You know what, especially uh, for me, I'm kind of lured when there's a full bright moon. Yeah. A walk out in the desert among the rocks. Like, it's yeah, it's beautiful. Kind of yeah, it's kind of beautiful. You don't want to wander too far away. No, it's a good way to find rattlers. Yeah, or just break your ankle or fall down a ravine. Yeah, yeah. that's true. So anyway, Julia is taking a walk while he's fixing the car. I guess she came up upon a hat box on the ground. Now, you know, everybody knows what a hat box is. People go shopping and see a hat box. But back they? in the old days, <laughs> it was kind of a suitcase type of hat well, box. It's a, it's, yeah, usually for women, for ladies' hats, it's a big round box. Right. Just watch I Love Lucy. You're going to see what pop up, I'm sure. Yeah, they might have a hinged lid or they might have a lid that comes all the way off and it's held on by ribbons or something like that. But anyway, there was something about this hat box that was kind of freaking Julia out. She thought she heard some sounds coming out of it. So she yelled for Ed to come over and check it out. Now, every article has different versions of the circumstances and conversations surrounding the story, flat tire, broken fuel line, even what was said between Ed and Julia when they found this hat box. My favorite version of what they said, however, which is one in which I learned a completely new word. This is from an article in the Arizona Republic by Don Dadera entitled, State's Christmas Baby Miracle of the Desert, dated December 25th, 1961. As you can see, we're not the first ones to roll this story out at Christmas. Here's an excerpt from the article with the new word. We're going to pick up after he's fixed the car. This, by the way, is the second article to state that they were humming Silent Night when the car broke down. Hmm. This article says they had a blowout. Anyway, uh, Forrest, I want to let you read this if you don't oh, mind. Oh, from the article here? Yeah. Mrs. Stewart strolled off the roadside as her husband wrestled with the tire. How quiet. How dark. The yellow window, the nearest home, blinked 10 miles across the sweep of desert wilderness. A vague blackness of the ground drew her attention. It seemed to be a round hat box. Yes, an ordinary hat box. The lid was shut. Ready to roll, honey, shouted Stuart. Ed, she answered. Come here a minute. Hey, come on, it's Christmas Eve. Ed, please come here. There's, there's something. Impatiently, Stuart walked to the box and gently kicked it. Just an old hat box, he said. Was that a sound? Stuart knelt and lifted the lid. He drew back a layer of blankets. There lay a tiny baby swathed in cotton strips. The infant cried. It could not be. As if at the brink of unreality, the Stuarts rewrapped the babe in a coat and drove directly to Mesa Police Station. Constable Joe Mayer was on duty. What in tunket's this? He asked, looking down at the bundle the Stuarts had placed in his vast lap. Okay, so uh, we just had to stop there for a minute. This is kind of unbelievable, but it's 6.30 p.m. on December 13th, 13th, as we said earlier, and we just got word that Alan Thicke has passed away. Yes, that's too bad. He was um, a beloved TV dad and and father of Robin Thicke, the singer. Well, his dad's been on TV for many, many years, so he's known as a TV dad for a lot of us in a certain generation. Yeah, 
I guess, you know, it's well, just it's crazy. Just, how again, much just one more. Yeah. At the end of the year. Anyway, so getting back to the article, what in Tunket's this? Well, first of all, that whole article, I love the yeah. way these articles from, I mean, this one's only from the 60s, I guess, but. Yeah, a little bit of a literary dramatic tone there. Well, it sounds yeah. like an episode of Lassie. Well, it, I don't it, know. it could be, yeah, you're right. You could be a little influenced by that. They Come over here. Yeah. I see something. Uh, come on. It's Christmas Eve. Uh, you know, it's, you just wonder what, what is it, actually, boy? you yeah. can just see that the Dan there that wrote that article, just writing it alone in his office without even talking to them. Oh, didn't but, he? Um, oh. No, who knows? I'm just, I'm just saying, but right. can we talk about the word Tunket? For a minute. Yes. Have you, is that a word you heard before tonight? Uh, no, but it's a connection, or as you say, it's kind of an expression, a U.S. colloquialism for the word hell, and I have heard of the word tofet. Okay. Which, uh, well, that's what well, we need to, to explain how yeah. that's connected. So, because I checked a few word origin forums and they listed it, as you said, as a colloquialism for hell. And then it was further indicated in a forum that I found from a poster named OP Tipping that it was a minced oath for Tophet that you just said. That's right. Which is a place of human sacrifice referred to in scripture. Tophet itself is also used as a mild synonym for hell. So, Tunket would be doubly euphemistic. Right. So more specifically, if you take a look at Wikipedia on Tophet, in the Hebrew Bible, Tophet or Topheth was a location in Jerusalem where worshippers influenced by the ancient Canaanite religion engaged in the human sacrifice of children to the gods Moloch and Baal by burning them alive. Tophet became a theological or poetic synonym for hell within Christendom. Yes, kind of a trigger there for some very dark stuff, but it's also referred to as Gehenna, which is a, an episode in uh, the show Millennium with Frank Black. Oh, okay. Uh, the spinoff of the X-Files. I saw him at the grocery store. Lance Henriksen is yes, the actor who, great voice, great deep cool voice there. It refers directly back to a very dark era, yes, when the followers of the Canaanite religions would burn children, babies, infants yeah. alive as sacrifices, and also sometimes I think it was a practice of the kings of Judah. What I was able to find is being polytheistic, the Canaanites had a ton of gods, but Moloch was considered the god of fire, and Baal was the storm god or master of thunder. So obviously a sacrifice to these two is not a pleasant thing. <laughs> no, neither was the experience. And so, uh, yeah, it's being a very dark thing. I'll just briefly mention, though, that uh, it caused a little uproar when it was announced that there would be replicas because there was a temple of Baal and the arch was going to be recreated for archaeological purposes because it was destroyed by ISIS in uh, Palmyra, Syria. Oh, right. So they were going to say, hey, we've taken scans or we can rebuild this, is kind of a statement, but people didn't take that very kindly yeah. or very well. Yeah. So that's all we'll say about that. You can certainly find a lot of that kind of stuff on the internet. Well, since the word Tunket has fallen out of the zeitgeist as a substitute for hell, I think it's our duty to bring it back for well, us. Well, it's, I, you know, I, what I love Tunket's this. I love old timey expressions, as you may know here, that I think now the Ark is probably collecting. I yeah. I saw some reference to that. I'm not sure to take that, but it's, <sighs> but it's kind of funny. I love uh, expressions. My friend Carrie, who way back when had a band, he, he's still a musician uh, now has an interest in all this stuff, but he had a band that he found in a book of expressions called Page 8. It was an old-time colloquialism like, that guy doesn't know his butt from Page 8. <laughs> so wow. Yeah. So, the, no, That's I love collecting stuff like that, but I've not really heard of that one. But interesting because, yeah, I made the connection to an abandoned baby. Yeah. It's, a, it's about a child sacrifice, and here we are. We have this abandoned baby on the side of the road in Arizona. Let's get back to that, actually. Yeah. When they found her, she was apparently very cold, and she was in a fetal position and hungry. And one report said that she was a one-week 
old baby girl. Another report says she was 10 months old. Oh, big difference. But we've seen the pictures, and I can tell you it's clear she was a newborn. She has uh, red hair and blue eyes. And in fact, one of our ARC members found a pretty amazing archived article from Desert Magazine, which was in print from 1937 to 1985 and was reborn online in the past 10 years or so with archives and new digital content. The article published in December of 1962 has lots of pictures of all involved, including a local Mesa woman known as Ma, or Ma Dana, who took it upon herself to take in homeless folks and people in need and help them out. The police officer that the Stewarts had brought the baby to, the same one that said, what in Tunket's this, <laughs> yeah. apparently went on to add in an old-timey way, let's take her out to Ma Dana. She'll know what to do. So they did. And Ma Dana promptly named the hatbox baby Marion after the Virgin Mary. Oh, more biblical references. Yeah, and when you read all the old articles about this story, they're peppered with plenty of biblical references. In fact, the one in Desert Magazine yeah. talks about how they were humming Silent Night when the car had a blowout, and it's Christmas Eve, right. and we got to get home and play Santa Claus to our newborn infant baby, which yeah. they had, which wasn't with them in the car. No, so. but quickly before I forget, not only is it heartwarming, and it's not about abandonment uh, so much, I mean, that's the way it starts off, and or sacrifice, but a new beginning, yeah. uh, and finding of, of life out in the middle of, uh, of desolation, and what other story do we know about a baby sent down the river to be raised by other folks? Moses. Moses, there that's you right. Go. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, classic, classic beginnings here. Right. So here we are again with the regular questions. What caused the car to break down right in that spot? What gave them enough time for Julia to get out and walk around? And more importantly, what took her in the direction of that hat box, which was 150 feet away from the car? Imagine that, 150 feet yeah, go walk that out, folks, and see how far away that actually is. How far would you get from a car in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, on the side of the freeway in Arizona? Well, I mean, around? if I was paying attention, again, nothing against them. I've certainly pulled over to the side of the road, stopped to take pictures in the moonlight, and uh, I just know that you don't want to get too far from the roads. Yeah. and But in, it's quite a walk up the road. This is what we didn't know or don't know at this point, because I asked Scott about this, is that she didn't walk 150 feet out into the open desert. We don't it, know. We don't know. It could have yeah. been 150 feet up the road still. Or back down the road. You still don't want to be by yourself out on the side of the road. I mean, people could be driving by and that's not a safe place. So, but anyway. It's, whichever it's, way she went though, it whichever, took her to the hat box. Exactly. Whichever way she went and for whatever reason, it was quite a miraculous find. Well, word got out. Within 24 hours, 28 families had applied to adopt Marion. Oh. And in the end, a local judge chose a stable middle-class one over the poorer ones and over the richer ones. And the adopted mother, Faith Morrow, said in court, quote, Please never tell where Marion is. Let her grow up without publicity, not as a freak found on the desert. Please never tell, end quote. The judge nodded and quietly but sternly glanced around the courtroom and without a word, all knew they were sworn to secrecy. Well, that's also a bit of a King Solomon, their decision to uh, give the baby to the right person. All right. So now if you're looking at this statistically and you were to say, well, what about all the other hat boxes with babies in them that weren't found in time? Except that wouldn't work because if deceased babies and hat boxes were found, it would be all over the news. So we pretty much know for a fact that this encounter was one in a million. Unless the whole story is fabricated. Uh-huh. Now, there's people that think that. In fact, suspicion around the Stewarts was so vitriolic that they moved away from the area. People surmised the hatbox thing was a cover story. 
They were newlyweds, and some suggested that baby Marion was their own baby, conceived in sin before they got married. I see. The only problem with that is they had an infant newborn already. Yeah. You can only have one baby every nine months, no matter how hard you're trying, unless you have yeah. twins. And you don't want to break up a set. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so the, not likely. It doesn't seem likely, but you know, this is a thing that happens with miracle stories. People are either completely flabbergasted by the statistical odds of the happening, or they assume, because it's so fantastic, that something sneaky is afoot, possibly even a hoax. Unsolved Mysteries, one of our primary inspirations, covered this story in December of 1989 and spoke at the time with a private detective who'd been working on it since 88. That detective actually found one of those teenage twins that was in the back of the car, as well as both Ed and Julia Stewart, but they didn't want to appear on camera because of the hoax accusations. They all clearly remembered the incident, though, and they stood by their story. Eventually, they were able to determine that the mother, who apparently had the little girl, had her out of wedlock at the young age of 15. Her name was claimed to be Edna Sherman Rowe, and that she had died in a plane crash in June of 1951. It's hard to say what that crash was, but we did find United Flight 610, a Douglas DC-6, flying from Salt Lake City to Denver that crashed into Crystal Mountain about 50 miles north-northwest of Denver, killing all 50 on board. In fact, we found a newsreel about it. The towering slope of Crystal Mountain becomes the graveyard of a transcontinental plane with 50 persons aboard. Rescue workers toil 8,500 feet up to the site of the crash, where wreckage is strewn for hundreds of yards through the densely wooded area. 45 passengers and a crew of five lost their lives as the airliner crashed against the heavy timber, hurling plane parts and motors in all directions. Wildlife joins the crash victims as the grim task of removing dead confronts the living. Forty miles off course, an airplane groped its way toward the Denver landing field. Then death on a mountainside. We couldn't find a passenger manifest, so it's hard to know if Marion's biological mom, Edna Sherman Rowe, was on that flight. But it's the only commercial crash that took place in the U.S. in June of 1951. And that date comes to us from research journalist John DeAnna, of the Arizona Republic back in 2011, leading him to official insurance records regarding a life insurance claim related to her. Other sources erroneously cite the plane crash as 1949. Had it not been Flight 610, it would have had to have been a smaller private aircraft of some kind that was less well-documented, we think. No matter what you think, baby Marion grew up to become Sharon Stieg Elliott, or Sharon Elliott, and she is now a retired aerospace worker, as of 2013 anyway, she still wasn't exactly sure what happened to her, and almost all of the aforementioned witnesses to the events surrounding her discovery have long since passed away. The relatives of Edna Sherman Rowe had no knowledge of her ever having had a baby, but one relative of hers went on to point out that things like that weren't discussed back then, and, quote, there could be something to it, end quote. So in the end, you have to ask yourself, was this baby found on the side of the road in the middle of the desert on Christmas Eve in Arizona? Was she saved by pure happenstance? Did something force Ed and Julia's car to break down? Or was it all collusion? A story concocted to protect the innocence of a young girl who became a mother way too early in life. There is a connection between Edna Sherman Rowe and the Stewarts who found baby Marion, or Sharon actually. You see, Sharon's adopted mother, Faith Morrow, told her that she had given all of her adoption paperwork to a dear friend who turned out to be Edna Sherman Rowe's niece. Mm -hmm. Sharon met this woman, claiming to be Edna's niece, when she was in her 40s, and they apparently looked so much alike they could have been sisters. But the woman told her that Edna had been Sharon's mother and that she passed away on that flight in 1951, about 20 years before they got together. 
So for me, having taken a deep dive into this over the past few days and without casting aspersions on anyone's character, in fact, more having admiration for how this was handled, it seemed to me very much that Sharon's adopted mother, Faith, knew very well that the woman she called her dear friend, the niece of Edna, was in fact possibly Sharon's biological mother. And they would have looked more like sisters than mother and daughter because they were only 15 years apart in age. I too think it's entirely possible the Hatbox story was fabricated as a way to protect both the baby and the mother from assessments of bad character and judgments from society at the time. I also think it's possible they all colluded to make sure that the baby survived and lived a good life, and I think that they might have perpetuated the myth of Edna Sherman Rowe being the mother because she had died in the plane crash, and that made the possible fabrication a closed case that was very difficult to investigate further. Edna was the right age, and she was deceased, so she could plausibly be the mother, and it would be hard to disprove. I think that Faith Morrow's dear friend was, in fact, Sharon's biological mother, who visited Sharon when she was in her 40s under the guise of being the niece of Edna Sherman Rowe, who was, in fact, a red herring. However, it's also plausible to me that Sharon was actually left in the hatbox by her biological mom, who later had regrets after she was found, and may have come forward to covertly identify herself to Sharon's adopted mother, Faith, so she could stay connected and a part of her daughter's life, but far enough away to protect her own identity. When the aforementioned journalist John DeAnna of the Arizona Republic went to try and find Sharon's adopted mother's dear friend, the niece of Edna, to talk to her again in 2011, she had fallen off the grid, couldn't track her down. It's now 2016, and the case, technically, is still unsolved. All I know is this. It's one tunket of a story. There's so much cooking going on around the holidays, and with so many people coming over to visit, everyone's trying to impress. That's why Blue Apron is such a great resource to have up your sleeve, especially when you have to entertain and you just don't have time to look for an exciting new recipe or grocery shop or any more stuff. Right. It's an impressive meal you don't have to think about until you're cooking it, which is the fun part. And it also might be a great gift for someone who thinks they're a great chef but really isn't. I think we've all been to some of those dinners. And no matter where you or your wannabe chef friends are, Blue Apron can be delivered to 99% of the continental U.S. and 99.5% of food deserts, where it can be nearly impossible to find the responsibly raised, sustainable... <laughs> why, why do you keep giving me this line? We're going to do it until you get it right. <clears throat> where it can be nearly impossible to find the responsibly raised, sustainably sourced, and regeneratively farmed meats, seafood, and produce that Blue Apron delivers right to your doorstep. Ah, very good. See, this is how we learn. <laughs> what Scott is trying to say is that not only can you feel good about the food you're getting or giving because it's a responsible way to do it, but the meals are fresh and interesting, it's convenient, it's affordable, it's fun to make, it brings families closer together, and the best part, it's really delicious. Come see why Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com astonishing. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Hey, Scott, you ever get a gift for someone and then when you get it home, it just doesn't seem like much? Yeah, that happens occasionally. And, and then you're not sure if they'd even like it or use it. Right. Well, here's a fantastic gift idea that's always a hit. Sherry's Berries. 
it's that perfect little something extra. Or a great idea for that office gift exchange, especially if you have a price range to consider. I've sent Sherry's berries a few times over the last couple of years for Mother's Day or as a thank you, and it's always a home run. And I always make sure I'm around when the box gets open because they immediately get devoured. Yeah, they actually didn't last very long at my house at all. We were actually <laughs> right. supposed to do a little bit of social media. I was going to take a picture and put it on our Instagram. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I ate them all before, <laughs> before I could take <laughs> that happens. To you. But these strawberries, I got to tell you, they are juicy and enormous. And they're perfectly dipped in white milk and dark chocolatey goodness. Not only were they delicious, but they look great too, so it makes a really nice presentation. I doubt you could find strawberries this huge and perfect at the grocery store, especially this time of year. Precisely. So here's the deal. Christmas is about a week away, and there isn't much time left to shop, wrap, and deliver your gifts. And we know everything's hectic, and you don't want to battle the traffic and the parking once you get there, and the lines at the stores. So why not choose something from Sherry's Berry's incredible collection of gifts, and go ahead and skip the crowds and hassle altogether. And with Sherry's Berries, you get to choose the delivery date, so your gift arrives fresh and on time, guaranteed. And it's not too late to get it there by Christmas Eve. And to make this deal even sweeter, Sherry's Berries is offering something special for our listeners. Use our offer code ALPOD and get a half dozen freshly dipped succulent strawberries covered in chocolate chips, chopped nuts, or decorative swizzles for just $19.99. That's over a 30% savings. Want an even sweeter deal? For just $10 more, Sherry's Berries will double the berries to make it a full dozen. Which I highly recommend because that, that one box, I gotta tell you, I ate it, I ate it in about 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you want 12. <laughs> so you might be asking, what if the person or myself doesn't like juicy, decadent strawberries dipped in rich, chocolatey goodness? Well, Sherry's Berries has so many more great gift ideas, like cheesecake bites and brownie pops, a meat, cheese, and snacks crate, or popcorn gift sets, to name a few. Sherry's Berries has something for everyone and every taste. So again, Christmas is right around the corner and there's only one way to get this amazing 1999 Sherry's Berries deal. Just visit berries.com. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. Click on the microphone in the top right-hand corner of the webpage and type in A-L-P-O-D. That's A-L-P-O-D. Once again, go to berries.com Click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner and type in A-L-P-O-D. Order them today. Hello, everyone. I'm Nick Heigl, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. A few weeks ago, there was a bad car accident in Texarkana, Arkansas. Yes. And a car flipped several times. People were ejected. And there was a baby in the car that they couldn't find when the paramedics arrived. Right. She'd uh, been ejected. Ejected. And there was just no sign of the child. So they're looking all around, and the, as they're milling around the car, they hear something coming from down in the median. There's no sign of anything, though. There's grass everywhere, or kind right. of hay, mowed grass, I guess. Yeah, they call it hay. Yeah, they call it kind of hay. Real tall grass that had been uh, cut down, mowed, right? Yeah. But mm -hmm. one of those giant mowers that you see sometimes. Yeah. So they go in, this, in the direction of the sound, and they pull away some of the hay and grass that's fallen down, and down inside of a grating, in the middle of the bottom of the gulch of the median, in the middle yeah. of the highway. Yeah, it's a drainage grate. Is the little girl, yeah. the infant. And the yeah. first responders were saying, like, she wasn't crying or fussing. She was making a little bit of noise. It wasn't like she was bawling her head off. But yeah. they had to remove the grass aside a little bit. Yeah. And then found the grate. And they said in the grate or under the grate, she was just kind of sitting there like uh, she was just waiting for them to find her. And then there was hay underneath her as well. It was like she was in a little manger. I <laughs> 
It's so sweet. <laughs> like, it's, but she, well, all she it's had amazing. Was a, she had a little scratch on her head. That was it. Yeah. yeah. So this car rolled and rolled and rolled. She flung out of the car, yeah. went down the ravine, and was in the grate. And this is the interesting thing about that. In addition to being essentially uninjured and yeah. safe in there, that also was a safe space to be. If another car or something were to come along, she would have been protected in there. Yeah, right. And they pulled her out of there, and everyone who was in the car has since been released to the hospital. In the last article, I said the driver was still in the hospital recovering, but everyone did recover. Right. It was it was a bad accident, but you know, I'm guessing she got ejected and didn't do a rainbow arc. Yeah. That, that would have injured her. I think my guess is that you have to imagine these are all over the different states, but on the sides of the highway, yeah, there's kind of a gully, a yeah. ravine that's kind of separates the north and southbound lanes or or the two directional lanes, east and west. You know, they have to be drained. So there's a storm drainage pipe. You got to drain the water and uh, and the, the snow, if you have it, out away. So I think she got ejected and kind of started rolling down a hill at a very favorable angle. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's like she was kind of caught by the angle of the hill. That got her rolling and she just came to rest of the grate, kind of fell through and landed on a little tuft of hay there. Like and, a and... little tiny, <laughs> a little tiny baby pinball. Well, she wasn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they, what's funny is that they said like, no, she wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't like she was screaming. She just... She was kind of making noises as, as we, infants do. Infants are calm. also a lot more durable. Well, they're, it's they're so springy. funny. You, you yeah. showed me that clip, and you were like, "We can't post this." But uh, like you, <laughs> you showed me that clip. It was the it was a security camera or something, yeah. or the baby's falling out of one. I think it was it was it's in, in China. In China, yes. We no, we can't baby show fall, it. Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll include right. it in the show notes. The baby falls out of a window, bounces off a car onto the sidewalk. Yeah. And then gets up and stumbles around like a cartoon character before wandering <laughs> off the screen. Yes, we can we can kind of have a chuckle because uh, the kid didn't seem to be injured. But what happens is that he or she glanced off the side of the car, so yeah. you could push your hand in and dent a car. So that absorbs some of the impact, and then a uh, little toddler fell on the ground. And then what's funny is that they get up and they look like a drunken sailor. They're yeah. like, whoa, that was, I, sh- I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. I'm not going to press on screens anymore. <laughs> and kind of uh, toddles off inside, and it's, it's kind of amazing. But yeah, when you're young like that, your bones are soft and springy. Now we would have, I'd be riddled with compound fractures. Yeah. <laughs> that happened to me. <laughs> but it reminds me, I don't know, should I tell the story of the toddler here somewhere in uh, Southern California? And maybe somebody would know about it. I won't have to do this now, but uh, no, I th- you know what? I think that's a good story. You, if you, you just want to re- throw it in yeah, there. you just yeah. reminded me of, of toddlers falling and yeah. uh, and we, being saved. Yeah, we actually did a lot of research on this and had a hard time I finding s- the original yeah. story. I it's, still have not gotten anywhere. Again, now I'm getting known for at least the last two episodes for coming up with very vague leads of like, <laughs> hey, there was a kid and then something happened. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how a couple of years ago. See if what you can find. It's like yeah. that's it. And now Scott's doing it. I saw there was a request on uh, to the river of like yes. a lady got hurt. I don't know something happened. See yeah. what you find. Yeah. So anyway, I did. This is a great story though, and I did see it on one of the major three or four news affiliates here. NBC, ABC. In Los Angeles. Yes, in Los Angeles. NBC, ABC, or CBS to their, at least their archival departments and see if they could, had any kind of footage at all. And I think what happened, at least I know with ABC, is that they were taken over by Disney and as a O&O, what they call owned and operated now, Disney went through a few years ago and reset everything. So they kind of dumped all of their stories that were on the websites, cleared out their news footage. And so anyway, long story short, found nothing. 
have, right. have really found nothing on the internet. Disney deleted old archives and from the news stations at ABC. Yeah, because they wanted... They so wanted that's a third to, of the big three right there. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they wanted a consistent look. I get that because yeah. it's everything has to look the same. And I thought the reason, it's like, there should be some report of that. Well, really, it was covered by one of the news stations. And again, it was such a great story. I totally remembered it. But this is what happened. So in one of the outlying areas, it could be Riverside, it's like a, a glorious story here. A child had fallen out of a second story window, I think by pressing on a screen. And as so many houses around here in Southern California, they had a big patio, a concrete patio. And the parents had heard, or maybe just the dad, they heard some commotion and they heard something kind of fall and thud, like, oh my goodness. And they, they ran it because they knew the kid was upstairs. They ran outside. Here's this uh, between three and four or five-year-old kid just standing there, perfectly fine. And they're amazed. They're blown away. It's like, oh, they're expecting broken bones or at least crying and screaming. But the kid, the boy, only had a tiny scratch on his forehead. And I don't think it could really express what happened to him. He just, I'm okay. And wow, okay, well, don't do that again. You scared us. You know, and like, just don't press on the screen. And they just kind of, you know, went away scratching their heads, not knowing what really happened. Well, maybe he just landed on his feet. Who knows? There was no furniture. There was nothing for him to bounce off of. They saw the screen, I think, on the on the ground. So they put that together is what happened. Well, the next day or a few days later, the dad is upstairs with his son in his study, I believe in the same room that where he fell out of. And the little boy points to a picture on the wall. He said, dad, that's the man who saved me. That's the man who caught me. And the dad kind of looks up at what he's pointing at. And just miraculously, he's pointing at a picture of the boy's grandfather, the dad's father, who I believe had passed away long before the boy was born. So he had no idea who this was. They never told him who that was of the picture because, you know, he's a little too young to understand. He knows he has a grandfather, understands the term, but he doesn't know that that's his grandfather. Yeah. So that one kind of gives you like good goosebumps there that uh, someone was looking out for the boy. And you, you could choose not to believe the boy or any part of the story, but what seems to have happened is that he fell out of the window with no injuries except for a tiny little scratch. And he claims that Grandpa caught him. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because it's a good segue into our last story of the evening and subsequently last story of the year, 2016. And this one is something that caught a lot of people's attention. It happened back in March of this year, March 6th, 2016, in Spanish Fork, Utah. This is our one story that does not have an Arizona connection, other than, <laughs> well, other than a touching border at the Four Corners region. That's true, yes, <laughs> but, but kind of in the general region. Yes, yeah. it is in the general region. So Friday, March 6th, 11 o'clock at night, 2016, 25-year-old mother Lynn Grosbeck lost control of her car in Spanish Fork, Utah, just south of Provo, and crashed into the Spanish Fork River, her Dodge Caliber landing upside down in the icy cold water. A nearby neighbor actually reported hearing a loud sound around 11 p.m. that night, but when she went out to investigate, she couldn't find anything. At 12.30 on Saturday, 14 hours after the crash, a fisherman saw the car in the water and called 911. First responders raced to the scene and down to the car that was planted firmly in the rushing frigid water, upside down. As they approached the car and worked as hard as they could to get a door open or get into the passenger's compartment, four of the first responders heard a voice from inside the car crying, help me. One of them replied, we're helping, we're coming. We're helping, we're coming. Bolstered by the cries for help, Several of them worked together to tip the car up on its side so they could get better access to rescue the occupants. 
Then they realized there was no movement from Lynn in the driver's seat. But to their horror, they also saw a baby inside the car. A fireman climbed up onto the side of the car as the responders held it up on its side. These guys had all been in the icy water several minutes now holding the car up, suffering themselves from severe hypothermia that ultimately required the hospitalization of several of them. But they refused to let that car settle back down into the water. The fireman on the top of the car, the side rather, now standing up, is trying to open the rear driver's side door. And he gets it open and discovers 18-month-old baby Lily Grossbeck, unconscious, and strapped into her baby seat in the back of the car. There's a flutter of activity as they struggle to find a knife or scissors to cut her seatbelt and free her. She is quickly handed off from one first responder to another until Officer Tyler Beddoes has her in his arms and runs up the rocky bank to an ambulance yelling, she's definitely hypothermic. She's definitely hypothermic, she's freezing. They worked frantically to get her blood flowing and her body temperature down in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. She was wearing only a flannel onesie. She had no hat and no gloves. After treatment, baby Lily was able to make a full recovery. And in spite of the loss of her mother, Lynn, she is now a happy, healthy little girl. Okay, so by the way, that entire description that I just read is something that I wrote after watching Officer Beto's body cam video, which is online, and we've included it in the show links. And you're going to be hearing a soundbite or two from it here in a minute. I can't necessarily recommend watching it. It is one of the most intense pieces of video I have ever watched in my life. I have, I don't think I've ever been so caught up in something. I actually had to turn it off. I was crying, like bawling, crying mm. this afternoon when I was looking at it. Well, body cam footage is is raw and it's, unedited. It and really, it's, it's, you're right there. And it's the whole thing with the kid when you see that little girl and he's trying to get her out of there. But let's back up a little bit here. The car had landed in a way that even though it was upside down, the back of it was slightly elevated. And as a result, Lily was suspended upside down in her baby seat with her head dangling just barely above the waterline. So there's a wide variety of factors as to how that might have gone differently. Had her seat not been properly secured, had she not been properly buckled in, if it had rained recently or snowed, the river level might have been higher. Had the car landed differently, the back seat might have been submerged entirely or even just a few inches more. All kinds of things could have contributed to a different ending for Lily, but they didn't. However, here's the reason this story made news worldwide when it happened, and it also caught our attention at the time, too. And some of you who were listening may have already caught on to it. Remember when we said that four of the arriving officers heard voices coming from inside the car crying for help? You can even hear one of them on the body cam saying, we're helping, we're coming. There's quite a mystery surrounding where that voice came from. Lily's mom, as we said, died on impact 14 hours earlier from blunt force trauma. Lily, as we said, was only 18 months old, unconscious and hypothermic when they arrived, which begs the question, who was it that said, help me? All right, so here's the thing about that. Officer Beto's body cam footage, you can see everything that happens right up from when he gets out of his car and runs down into the river and he approaches a car. They do everything they can to get the victims out of it. And at right around the two minute mark, Anyone who watches this video can hear a muffled voice coming from inside the car. It's hard to understand what it's saying, and even the different officers have said they heard different things, but all of them said it was a plea for help. We're helping, we're coming. 
if you presented this as just another one of those videos or audio tapes you see with the paranormal tags and said, hey, listen, you can hear or see this or that happen, but note that no one in the room or space at the time seems to be hearing it or seeing it, that's in a lot of ways a little bit easier to dismiss. You can say, oh, there's fakery, but what happens here? What makes this video different in this video? Whether you as the viewer and listener hear the help me or not, the point is he hears it so clearly that he actually responds to it out loud. And that response changes everything for me as a believer that something was going on. This is a high adrenaline situation. These folks are in superhero mode, sacrificing their own safety to effect a rescue of the people in the car. And when you watch the whole video, the tension and urgency is palpable. And frankly, as I said, I can't recommend watching the whole thing to everyone. It's really intense, especially if you're a parent. Officer Beddoes has two kids of his own, so you can imagine what was going through his mind as he's frantically massaging Lily, trying to get her back from the brink and saying, come on, sweetie, come on, sweetie, over and over. It's gut-wrenching. But here's the good news. Lily survived and is alive and well today, and it's a tragedy that she lost her mom, but she has a loving extended family and is happy and healthy now. So the question is, who cried for help in that car? Lily's family will tell you it was Lynn, her mother, who loved Lily very, very much. Others have said it was a guardian angel that maybe stayed with Lily all night until the wreck was discovered. Or maybe it was nothing at all, a trick of the mind. What do you think, Forrest? Well, I would say if it's a trick of the mind, it's a trick of four minds all at once at yeah. the same time. Because I remember this story distinctly, and we posted it on Facebook. Yeah. I remember. I shared it. I couldn't remember if it was a blog entry or a Facebook. It was a Facebook share, wasn't it? It was a Facebook share yeah. from, uh, I think, it was our... before Tess was running our blog. It's, yes. It's now much more efficient. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and well-written, I'm sure. It was a Facebook entry on our show page for on Facebook, and we just thought it was remarkable at the time. And this was kind of, as news agencies will do as you'll see over and over again, it was a very minor report because they don't yeah. want to get too deep into speculation. I get it. In the minds of a lot of people, when you start mentioning too much of this kind of stuff, they start to doubt your credibility. I watched a whole report where they didn't even mention it, a news clip where they did not even mention the fact that these four guys who later went on to do numerous interviews saying, no, right. we all heard the voice. We all heard someone saying, help me from inside the car. Yeah. And I myself, I listened to that little bit of that video about 15 times a day yeah. with my super high-end headphones. <laughs> well, you can hear something coming from inside the car. It's muffled and crazy sounding. I and then when I he responds too. to yeah. it so clearly, yeah. it's like he's there. You know, I'm trying to listen through headphones to a body cam. He's standing there in the real world hearing what he thinks is coming from inside the car. Right. Now, what's funny is that before we started the recording session, I walked in and Scott had that up. I had really not seen the body cam footage. I've seen news reports. I've seen brief interviews at the time with the first responders claiming that like, no, no, we all four heard this at once. There was a voice. We don't know where we can't say, and they didn't speculate on it. So walking into Scott's office there and him playing the clip before he even told me what that was, I thought I heard the voice pretty yeah, clearly. Right. It wasn't a, a, yeah, I a just lead, said, Hey, watch this, suggestion. watch this. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like uh, this is the voice. And then I like, Oh, I can hear it too. It's like, I kind of thought that that's what that was, which I, immediately got goosebumps yes. just slightly because I, had the same I knew feeling. the story and that I knew that she had died 14 hours before that was possible even. So, right. And even if yeah. she had survived a little bit after the accident, she's not going to have survived 14 hours later submerged in the water. Well, that's the other thing. As the way you described the scene, the car is upside down in the frigid waters of the river. And by chance, who knows, the baby's car seat is angled high enough that the baby is strapped in and kept out of the water. Now it's still cold. So the baby has hypothermia 
and had been there all night. Yeah. Uh, but most likely the woman, the mom, was under the water. Yeah. So even if you think like, well, maybe they got the time of death wrong and she was really still alive when the first responders got there, how is she making those vocalizations underwater? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. So that's one thing. The other thing that I immediately remarked to Scott about was it's the rules or how do these things happen? Because if you hadn't heard kind of a vocalization on the digital recorder, are they all for then hearing this simultaneously just in their heads as a thought projection, if you want to get kind of trippy on that? Or is it something, an actual sound? And what's funny is that, yeah, we had some members of the ARC, uh, maybe Marie, I think, before we were talking about, you know, Skinwalker and actually being able to capture images on uh, film and video or even audio. And uh, I think she said, well, that you know, why bother? Why have your camera ready? Because you can't even photograph them. And I think that in some cases, you're seeing a fog. We certainly saw Linda Godfrey's, uh, she had a couple of photographs of a, a trail camp set up and it would just seem like to be a fog when something, where something weird happened. Yeah. My thinking is that if you can see it or hear it, you should be able to record it. That, especially if other people are hearing it. Yeah. Now it may be uh, some kind of warping that when you play it back, it's not exactly what you thought you heard or it sounds different or maybe nothing at all. Yeah. So again, it could be a trick of the mind in the, in the positive light that they're just going there. Look, they know that there's occupants inside. They have to search. That's how they're trained. Get anybody inside out and into safety and warmth. So they don't know who's in there. That's yeah. the other thing. They're not like, oh, I bet there's a mom with a kid. Yeah. And they don't know until they get eyes on it. And you can tell from the body cam that that is pretty late in the game yeah, when yeah, they no, figure it out. Yeah, they see no, the no. driver. They don't even see the baby until they've got the car tipped up on its side. Right. They just know that most likely there's somebody inside. Because the airbags are all deployed and there's all kinds right. of detritus hanging in and around. And it's, you know. Again, if you take the footage, you know, you got to decide for yourself. If you do click on the link. And, and again, yeah, Scott said it's a little disturbing just because of the circumstances, but something good came from it. A baby lived. If you do decide to play it, I think you can definitely hear something. Yeah. Um, some kind of voice. And definitely, like you said, they responded to it and they both all, all four of them claim that they did hear something and it was about exactly at the same time. You have to decide whether or not you believe something's happening there. Okay. So here are some questions that I think popped up once we posted it. I know it's a stretch for people to believe and maybe you were even a spiritual person who follows a faith regularly and uh, you believe in an afterlife and all these kind of things. But you won't go this far, that there's direct interaction with loved ones from the other side. So here's a couple of questions I'll, I'll, that I remember from that post. Were there any houses around where they may have heard a sound of a voice bounced off from a distance? There were houses around where the accident happened. And in fact, I, I'm remembering at this rather late stage when I posted on Facebook that we had some comments actually from a friend of mine who was like, well, maybe it was something from the house or whatever. Right. Yeah. And I actually went on to... Google Earth and found where the closest house was. And I can't remember the exact distance right now. It's an ancient Facebook yeah. posting. It's probably still on our Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. But it was a good ways away, like a good ways away. Yeah. And I would say standing down in the river where I have seen this footage and the water rushing by, and it's not right. like, you know, class five rapids or anything, but it no. is making a noise. There are sirens everywhere because they're coming. You can hear this other conversation. You can hear another police call on the radio. Right where a guy's like, there's too many tumbleweeds. I can't yeah. get in the house or something. And then another call, you hear Officer Beto at one point going, we don't need traffic control. The car's in the river. It's yeah. so visceral. I got to tell you, this. Well, it's, it's just, yeah. I mean, even now when I think about it, it gets me upset. But that what I remember from the overhead view of the spot where the car went over is that the house that was close enough by that was probably the same person who heard the loud noise yeah. is too far away to mistake a voice from. And secondarily, 
is someone going to stand what on the side porch of that house and yell help me at the very moment they're trying to get into the car? It does it just doesn't make sense or right. yell anything really right. because right. all eyes are on that car yeah. and trying to get those people out of there. So you know all the stories we've told tonight have their own aspects of spiritual and possibly scientific reasons that people may have survived or you know maybe my truck driver was an angel maybe it was just a guy who pulled over and did the right thing Look, I, I, maybe yeah. the scaffolding turned into a flying surfboard and chris cogswell at one point said to me it might have been going as slow as 30 or 40 miles an hour with yeah. the wind resistance yeah and yeah. It, there's all these different things but this story for me and the reason it's the last story and i wanted it to be the last story yeah. of, the, of this episode it hits you in your core. It feels yeah. like the one, you know, like you and I are always saying, and a lot of people say, yeah. it's like only a few of these have to be true. <laughs> only one has to yeah, be true. Yeah, only one has to be in true. In that particular uh, genre. Yeah. But here's the thing. We always touch upon this. I believe personally that, yeah, sometimes things are just coincidences. And maybe you pulling over to the side of the road, that guy just happened to be like, I got to take a whiz maybe or stretch my legs, whatever it is just happened to be right there. It was just totally coincidence that he had a different cell phone carrier and he got a signal did. than you did and he got bars yeah. and you didn't. And that was just the right time at the wrong place, but he came along and helped you out. When you think about the Hatbox baby and it's like, well, maybe that's just a cover story. But you know what? Children are left abandoned all the time, sadly, by mothers who are incapable or unwilling to deal with them. And overwhelmed. And overwhelmed. And that's why we have safe places at fire stations and government buildings where the first three days, 72 hours, you can drop them off, no questions asked. Yeah. Because unfortunately, that does happen all the time. And babies are sometimes miraculously found all the time. There was a story here at the beginning of the year, I believe, a newborn baby was abandoned and was under a chunk of asphalt. And a homeless man, I think, found the baby and turned him in and the baby lived. Yeah. That does happen. Now you start to factor in all these crazy possibilities, like with the window fall, like, well, obviously he fell. That was not made up. He didn't make that up. That actually happened and he actually lived. So strange things happen, but here's the crux of it all to me. You can believe it's coincidence. You can believe some parts of the story are false. You can believe that for some reason they all decided to collude together and, and claim there was a voice and, and maybe they doctored the tape or maybe a voice bounced off the ionosphere down from somewhere else of someone else crying out and help. You can choose to believe that or none of it, but here's the beauty of it all. In the end, you get to believe whatever you want. <laughs> that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. Thank you so much for such a great year. We'll be back with our first show of 2017 sometime late in the week of January 9th. We'd like to thank The Great Courses Plus, Harry's.com, Blue Apron, and Sherry's Berries for sponsoring us. Please remember that supporting our sponsors helps support the show. So if you're looking for the perfect gift for your loved one this holiday season, look no further. Special thanks to John Bowen. Hi, I'm Haley. Hi, I'm Jordan Bonaparte. Hi, I'm Nick Heigl. And I give permission to astonishing legends to use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. In perpetuity. In perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. 
good night.